Hills. We start the show today, though, with the story of a missing man. You've likely heard this story on the news. He has been missing since October 10th, talking about 25-year-old Jordan Nader, last seen in Manning Provincial Park. Many people know that park very well, last seen on Thanksgiving weekend. Well, now his family is here to set up a private search. And joining me on the line is Greg Nader. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Uh, I know, uh, first of all, I, I can't even imagine what uh, you and the rest of your family is going through. Uh, talk a little bit, if you can. You uh, came uh, to BC from Atlantic Canada uh, to start up this private search. Where do things stand right now as far as any searching going on for your son? Yes, uh, my wife and I are here from St. John's. And uh, as you know, our son Jordan has gone missing since uh, Thanksgiving weekend. There was a a case open for missing person that was led by the Vancouver Police Department that started um, a couple of days after that. And that search has gone on until uh, this past weekend. But that on the weekend, we received devastating news from the, uh, the VPD that a decision was made to suspend search. Um, however, if there was any further information or clues that could move the case forward, they would uh, reactivate the case. So I guess my first observation there is that that's, uh, that's an awfully quick, short period to give up on a young man who is a brilliant, talented engineer, very resilient, very resourceful, certainly could go Um, on more than four days or so in the wilderness um, because he was very well prepared with a tent, a sleeping bag, and water. So, yeah, uh, um, so have they given up after four days? But uh, as parents, um, we will not give up until we find our son. So, anyway, they said uh, basically that it would restart um, if new information or clues were found. Well, we have found new clues and information, and we sent that several days ago. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had a timely response to that or any response, in fact. Um, the new clues that we have are that we have found uh, Jordan's white cap. A witness found Jordan's white cap and Oakley glasses on a point on the trail further up from where he was um, previously spotted by a witness. And uh, so that's really significant information at two different points, his possessions. So one would think that that is uh, new evidence and clues that the case should be reactivated. Haven't heard back. Um, And so we are in a life and death situation with our son, obviously. And we can't, you know, we can't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for this. So we've we've started now with uh, uh, working with a Um, other organizations and starting drone sweeps ourselves. Um, One thing I did want to mention with the search that was done, it was really a very small portion of the area that was covered with thermal imaging helicopters, dogs or drones, very small proportion. So there's still a lot more work that uh, I think could have and should have been done. So we're, we're starting it ourselves. We have an incident commander command center here. My wife and I are, operating this out of a hotel room at the Manning Park Lodge. Um, and we're, we're starting this ourselves without the Vancouver Police Department help. Now, another thing I 
Yeah, so that's that's an update. And when you mentioned that he was experienced or that he had a tent and he had equipment with him, uh, is he also an experienced hiker, somebody who would be able to survive for several days, uh, even if maybe he'd become injured or he was lost? I think so. He is an experienced hiker. He's very resilient and resourceful, as I mentioned. Uh, I wouldn't call him like an expert hiker or a mountaineer, but uh, certainly he's he's more than an amateur. He's he's been in this trail before in other trails outside of Vancouver. He really enjoys hiking. So I think uh, I, I certainly believe that he he is still out there and he would be able to to get through it. Although, of course, I am very worried now about this snowstorm coming later later this week. Uh, when you mentioned the clues as well, finding uh, the white hat and a pair of Oakley glasses, what do you take from that? In is it possible he just dropped those, or do you think? I mean, if you're thinking about somebody surviving in the in the wilderness, those would be things that you wouldn't absolutely need. Is it possible? Do you think he left those as he continued hiking or trying to get to, to find his way out? He left those as clues. Um, so I think it is possible that he dropped them or when he had his backpack, when he stood up, that they just fell off or something because he did have a pretty big, heavy backpack. It could have blown off his head. Uh, another possibility is that um, he's obviously very weak now and uh, getting desperate. And he may have seen helicopters coming above, but he just couldn't get out into the clear area to make himself visible. Maybe he threw them out into an open area with hopes that they would be seen. Or maybe he threw them out and the wind carried them near the, tra- uh, near the trail because he, maybe he, he probably doesn't need that cap anymore. And maybe that's a clue. Perhaps, uh, who knows, what, which one of these happened. Uh, his vehicle was found in the the Lightning Lake area of M- Manning Park. You mentioned the Frosty Mountain Trail that was at the, the trailhead to the Frosty Mountain Trail. Uh, is there anything in your son's past that would suggest to you something else is going on here? No, I, I don't know what you're referring to with that, but no, this is a, a, a this is a very young. Uh, talented, brilliant young man. Just ask any any of his friends who know him. Cheerful, cheerful, um, and he was. He sometimes he travels with a group and friends. Sometimes he hikes alone. But I'm not quite sure what you're referring to in that question. Sure, but I, I think I, I think this is this is quite straightforwardly a case of a person. I think who got disoriented and lost, wandered off the track. There are several places on this trail that are not well marked, and we know that there was snow at this time. Could have covered up uh, the sign. There are many bends in the trail that if you just miss one post or something, you can keep going straight instead of doing a sharp left. Things like this. This is what we firmly believe has happened here. Absolutely. And and I didn't mean any disrespect by that. But whenever we hear stories like this, there is always that question of police call the search off so quickly. Uh, There are these clues. Uh, There are questions often asked about uh, if something else is going on, that there are things that other people aren't aware of. That, That was the only reason that I asked that. There's nothing else that I'm aware of that would be anything other than the fact of disorientation, uh, snow on the ground, poorly mar- some poorly marked areas, and a pretty strenuous, tough trail.
At this point, like you said, you have set up an incident command. You've started this private search. Are you looking for volunteers? Are you wondering if, or looking for if there are search and rescue people who want to, on their own time, do help out with the search? Or what do you need as a family right now? Yes, absolutely. Um, we do have a number of volunteers, and we, we'd be deeply grateful for others who could come out and, and help. Um, we need dogs. We need expert hikers we, and trackers as well. You can contact uh, myself, um, gnatterer at mun.ca, or my wife, gjnatterer at gmail.com either. Um, there's also one other thing that we, we critically need, and uh, we were promised this several days ago from the Vancouver Police Department. I asked for the records of the past SAR work done, the areas that they traversed, the map of probabilities, and the breadcrumb trails of the SAR assets. These are critically needed by us so that we can strategize on the areas that we're going. We still haven't received that information. Um, These are records that we believe we have access to. And um, I'm, uh, I'm very distressed that we're not able to get this in a prompt manner. Have they discouraged you from going ahead with the private search? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And have they given you... I would say that they are skeptical. Uh, when, When they conveyed their news to us about suspension of the search, and we essentially said, you know, you may have given up on our son, but we are not going to give up. Um, and then I, you know, we explained what we would do. We would have volunteers. We would have uh, drones that would search the area, etc. You know, they, they really tried to, I guess, um, uh, basically just throw, throw cold water on that, so to speak, and, and throw skepticism is that, oh, you know, this is not going to work for reasons A, B, and C. Well, you know, as far as I'm concerned, with the, the search that has been done so far, with, with the dogs, drones, and thermal imaging with such a small percentage of the total areas, there were just a lot of drainage basins and water source areas that were not covered, in my opinion, uh, with this technology. So um, that's, that's why we have, we're, we're kind of at the end of the line and we need to do this ourselves without the support from the police authorities. All right. Well, Greg, I do hope that you find uh, your son and uh, hopefully there will be people that uh, can help you and have the means to help you. We'll keep in touch for sure. And thank you so much for taking some time with us today. Thanks. Still uh, having a lot of conversations about masks, the wearing of masks, where they are mandatory, uh, where they are not. And you might have heard in the news, Sarah Kirby Young, who is a Vancouver City Councillor with the NPA, uh, has brought forward a motion to make masks mandatory in Vancouver civic facilities. So any civic facilities in the city would have that rule that masks are mandatory to be inside. Uh, She is getting the support of the group Masks for Canada. That's a group uh, that consists of of physicians, academics, other healthcare professionals and engineers uh, calling for uh, masks to be mandatory in places uh, such as civic buildings. And joining me on the line is Dr. Anna Wolak, a family physician and a clinical assistant professor at UBC, member of Masks for Canada. Dr. Wolak, thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, putting your support behind uh, Councillor Kirby Young, uh, not, not a huge surprise there. How important do you think it is, though, that we see more of these initiatives for public buildings to have this policy? Well, we think it's very important, which is why we decided to to come out with with support a supporting letter for Councillor Kirby Young, especially following yesterday's announcement that BC is in our second wave. We've tried the um, multiple layers of protection, the distancing, the hand washing, staying home when sick, um, getting tested, and we're still in the second wave. So we want this mask mandate to add on that extra layer of protection to complement these layers just so that we can try to weather through and hopefully have the second wave be a blip and not a tsunami. And with... Sorry. Oh, so I was saying, when you mention all of those other measures as well, isn't it part of that in that the masks are, are part of that bigger picture of all of those measures? Exactly. That's what we, we don't want you to. We, we're not saying that British Columbians need to forget everything else and just put on a mask and we we fix the pandemic. No, we're saying we want to add this mask mandate to it because a lot of um, detractors of mask mandates are saying, well, you're not a superhero with a mask. It doesn't make you invincible. We're like, we're not saying that. What we're saying is masks should will help, at least with this fight. It's not 100% effective. We know that. But we need to add more and more layers of protection until we can get through this um, pandemic. Um, outside Vancouver City Hall this morning, there were three people, so you could call it a very small protest, but three people with signs that were opposed to Sarah Kirby Young's motion. Uh, but we did also see on the weekend in Vancouver anti-mask rallies that got up to about a thousand people, large groups of people who were coming out fighting against masks, fighting against the science, uh, saying in some cases that they don't think the virus is real. How concerning is that to you? First of all, the just the, the biggest concern is looking at the throngs of unmasked, undistanced people yelling in each other's faces, aerosolized particles everywhere. There's the risk of that alone becoming a super spreader event. There's taking all of that aside. Is the is, yes, there is a lot of um, anti-mask rhetoric out there. We're hoping that a mandate helps separate. Less so much the, the there are staunch anti-maskers out there who, no matter how much you try to talk to them, how much science you throw at them, they will not believe you. It's the people in the middle, the people who are looking at 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 various sides and saying masks are bad, masks are good, masks will kill you, masks will fix you. And we need the mask mandate to kind of cut through all of that noise, and we're hoping that that will help those people who are confused as we all are because we're in the middle of a novel pandemic the science is evolving has been evolving since we thought we were thrown into this in march um and to say the science is behind this we are mandating this we are showing leadership and and making this easier for everyone so we can cut through the noise and focus on the other things and for those people who legitimately cannot wear a mask those who, for whom there really is a medical exemption, it'll make it easier as well for physicians on the ground, on the front line, to, to work with them about around it without having to deal with the noise of the anti-mask rhetoric. So would you like to see something like this motion for Vancouver Civic Buildings expanded to, to include all indoor spaces? Oh, yes. We, 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 you and I spoke, I think it was in August, August. where we, we had talked <laughs> yes. about this, and we're still talking about this. In um, the eastern provinces, 
um, it all started with smaller mask mandates around like civic centers and, you know, various um, small businesses and bigger businesses came on and then they became province wide. It's not happening in BC. We're seeing patchwork things. You can, you have to wear a mask at Starbucks, but you don't need to wear a mask to go into the emergency room. And we're hoping that if we're seeing it in, in the civic mandate, so Richmond passed a mask mandate and we're hoping if Vancouver passes it, It'll become more uniform. It'll become more accepted, more normalized, and hopefully get rid of that confusion. And even if there never is a provincial-wide mandate, then maybe there will, it will just be more normal and more people will take it up. Are there still concerns, though, and I think we touched on this in August as well, when you talk about we know that masks, non-medical masks, face coverings, that they're not 100% effective. They're not the one thing that protects everybody. Is there a concern that, that if we continue uh, with, with that idea of, of the mandatory and the rules that people will get that false sense of security? Well, we're not seeing it so much, though. It's, um, I mean, people are still... Especially in schools, you can see you can see it in schools that you know kids are wearing masks, but they are still keeping their distance. They are hand washing. I mean, that's the most controlled environment I can see, which is why I can say that I don't know what other people are doing. But part of the mask mandate is we want to stick in that education facet as well. It's just say you need to wear a mask. It's not going to protect you 100. percent You still need to do the physical distancing, the hand washing, stay home when you're sick, get tested if you have symptoms. But throw this in on there and make it. Um, an all-encompassing mandate, so to speak. Uh, and, and the issue of masks, wearing them, wearing them properly as well, because while I've seen a huge increase in walking around the city and being on transit of people wearing masks, I've also seen, unfortunately, an increase of people wearing masks below their noses, which I can imagine does nothing if you're wearing it like that. And there's also mask hygiene. How important is that? It's important to wear the mask properly, for sure. Um, there's no point in wearing it. I've seen it on people's chins. So there's the chin guard look. I've seen it on people's heads as their headband look. Um, and even just the whole, yeah, not covering their noses or and just covering their mouths. We're not protecting from the aerosolized particles. Masks are the one thing that stops COVID at its source. Um, so we are trying to protect from those aerosolized particles. So, But again, that would all be part of what we're hoping is an education um, mandate of this is how you wear a mask. Please make sure you wash your hands when you put it on, wash your hands when you take it off, and make sure it covers your nose, your mouth, and your chin. Do you have concerns as well about fatigue of people when we talk? And as you mentioned, Dr. Bonnie Henry yesterday talked about being in the second wave. Uh, We're seeing other provinces shutting down in uh, restaurant dining and and other facilities as well. How concerning is that idea of fatigue that we've already done all of this and now we're seeing these restrictions and shut down again? I mean, COVID fatigue is real. We're all feeling it. Everybody is tired, but we're all bracing for winter is coming and with it, everything else with all the respiratory viruses with it. So, yes, it is concerning. But like I said, there's never really been a a proper mask mandate. And we want to get that mask mandate in precisely to avoid a lockdown like we had in March. We're still seeing reeling from the effects of that lockdown. And so that's the one thing we don't want. We don't want to overwhelm the health system, but we also don't want a lockdown. And at this point, we've used as many measures as we can. That's why we want to add the mask mandate. We know it's, it can be a tough ask. There is 
yet one more thing to add, that if we can look at it as a, we wear a mask or we face lockdown, hopefully that makes the mask a bit more palatable. All right. Uh, we will leave it there for today. Dr. Wolak, thank you again so much for coming back on the show. Yes, thank you for having me. Talking more about federal politics, earlier today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau defended his decision, the decision to designate the Conservative motion pushing for the creation of a committee to look at ethical problems with government spending, to designate that as a confidence motion. This, as we hear from all of the parties, saying we don't want an election. So what exactly is going on in Ottawa? David Mosscrop joins me now. He is the author of... Too Dumb for Democracy, also a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Communication at the University of Ottawa. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Has this happened before that we know of that a motion about a committee has been deemed a confidence motion? I mean, not that I'm aware of. It's possible somewhere in the the long history of parliamentarianism and in the United Kingdom tradition that's descended to us that it's happened, but I certainly can't think of any. It's certainly extraordinary. And, it, you know, put it this way, typically this sort of thing would not be a confidence motion. So what do you make of what's happening? Well, I don't want to be cynical. But, <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I think the Conservatives, for both substantive and political partisan reasons, want to drag out the investigation into we and the government. Uh, I say a mix of partisan and substantive reasons because, you know, there's something worth digging around there. And the government hasn't exactly been cooperating to the full extent that it could. But also the conservatives are sort of trying to to make as much hay as possible about this, whether or not it's reasonable. So, you know, obviously they're they're both playing political games. Uh, The government has no interest in this dominating the agenda because it's bad for them. And so they decided that they're going to play electoral chicken. Uh, in the midst of a surging pandemic. And the the Conservatives have come out as well, Aaron O'Toole also saying, we don't want an election either. So can they change the wording or can they do something then that, that, that changes perhaps the support that they might get or how that vote might go? Well, I mean, the whole thing is, you know, not to get all political science jargony on you, but the whole thing's pretty stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> Aaron O'Toole says... Um, we don't have confidence in the government. And the government says, okay, we're going to say that this is a confidence motion. You know, the government's playing their own politics. And then Aaron O'Toole says, oh, no, 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 it's not a confidence motion. And so the opposition's trying to have it both ways as well. But I think they've overplayed their hand because I really at this point don't think there's much they can do because I would imagine the NDP doesn't want an election and isn't prepared for an election. So I would say under most circumstances, if it's going to be a confidence motion, the NDP will side with the government and that will save the government for the day and the the motion will fail and the conservatives will avoid election. But they'll also lose the committee they're trying to set up and they'll have to try to use the existing committee structure to do as much as as they can on this. Uh, You know, it's possible they reach a deal. But at this point, if the NDP is going to side with the liberals, the liberals really have no interest in, in reaching such a deal. 
And with the NDP siding with the Liberals, is there a chance there that they are seen also, uh, as, you, as you said off the top, uh, there's a reason why the Liberals and Justin Trudeau himself doesn't want to whatever it is that this committee could uncover or whatever information they're seeking. Uh, does the NDP then stand the risk of if they side with the government, granted they're going to side with the government saying we are doing this so that an election isn't triggered, but do they also look like they too are not interested in finding out what that committee could uncover? Yeah, I think if the Tories decide to weaponize this against the NDP saying, there you go again, propping up the government, uh, you know, why don't you want Canadians to learn the truth? They, they can do that. But, the, the, you know, the NDP isn't the Tories' primary opponent, the Liberals will be. And I suspect the NDP response, which will be the same as the Liberal response, is why are you trying to waste parliamentary time? Why are you trying to waste parliamentary energy? Why are you trying to waste public airwave time talking about this when we should be dealing with the pandemic? And I would imagine most Canadians looking at this probably say, you know, well, it'd probably be good to get more information about that. But I certainly don't want an election over it because we want our government trying to figure out the pandemic for us. And that's what's most important. And so I think in those competing messages, the Liberal NDP side probably ekes out a little bit ahead. Uh, I saw somebody uh, was uh, compare this or make the reference of it's kind of like that old phrase that they can't they're suggesting that they can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, And I've seen other questions about that as well. Is there not a scenario where we can continue dealing with the pandemic and continue government operating and also have a committee looking into this? Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, the the government argument is that, you know, the the degree to which the committee, the Tories and the committee would be asking for documents and compelling ministers and others to appear before it would be so extreme that it would slow down the response. Because even at the best of times, and this is what the government has said, trying to go and get all those documents and to, you know, physically produce them and share them is onerous. I would imagine that's partially true, but it's probably being trumped up a little bit, the degree to which it would slow things down. So I suspect, as always, the truth is somewhere, you know, a little off from where the partisans say it is, which is to say it would slow things down and distract a little bit, but it probably wouldn't bring our pandemic response to a grinding halt. And if it does, then that says an awful lot about our capacity as a state, which is a whole different problem. So, you know, you know, right. So go. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was. Weren't we doing that before Parliament was prorogued? Yeah. Yeah, we were. And uh, and again, I mean, to go back to the prorogation, I mean, a lot of people at the time, including myself, and, and I think you as well, said, you know, well, this doesn't seem to really add up. We really need this. And then we, we were told, oh, just wait for the throne speech. And then the throne speech arrived and we responded with, really? We had to take five weeks off for that? You just reannounced a bunch of stuff that you had announced over the last couple of years um, and, and killed time on the committees. So I, I think people have a have good reason to be cynical right now. And I think the committee should exist, quite frankly. And not to mention when the Prime Minister said he needed airtime to announce to the nation critical information, uh, which I think we can all agree, uh, the networks, we were all duped. There was nothing in that uh, announcement to the nation that was any different than what we'd seen in his morning briefings or any other news conference that would get full coverage. Yeah, at the time, I, I joked that on Twitter that it was sort of like your third grade teacher lecturing you and asking for your vote at the same time. You know, it was a really weird, you know, one third of that address was useful because it was sort of PSA advice that we want about the pandemic. And then it kind of became an infomercial, uh, which, as you mentioned, the networks had prom- were promised it wasn't going to be that. So, yeah, I think folks got duped. 
And I think, frankly, over the last couple of months with the kind of prorogation and the throne speech and that, we were all sort of duped because I think it was deeply partisan and political. And again, that's not to say that the opposition parties aren't being partisan and political. Of course they are. But the government tries to have it both ways when they get sanctimonious and say that it's all just public good, public interest, and has nothing to do with their political fortunes, because that's just plainly not true. I also think, too, with people watching and listening to what's happening right now, what we've been talking about, this committee, do people really want to see the main parties, the leaders of the main parties, squabbling about a committee, talking about changing the name of a committee to make it so it's not about an election? No, I highly doubt there's anybody in this country that thinks that's the best use of time and energy. No, I think they, you know, they expect parliamentarians to govern themselves, but to, to put the pressing matters top of the list. And I mean, to go back to what we were talking about at a minute ago, I mean, you can certainly do that while also responding to the pandemic and, and the investigation. But if you dig into what the committee really was going to be, I think you see why the Liberals are concerned. It was going to be a committee made up of 15 MPs, the majority of which were going to come from opposition parties, and it would be chaired by an opposition party, and they would have pretty strong powers to, to, to get witnesses and documents. Um, and so, you know, what this really is about at the end of the day is the Liberals desperately do not want a committee with that sort of power digging around into the government, whether or not they find anything, because it will drag on, it will be in the news, and it will uh, undermine the, the political fortunes of the government, which is what they're ultimately worried about. Is there any chance that the Liberals actually want an election? Well, put it this way. If, if this is a political showdown, they're in the favorable position because either they, they avoid the committee, which is what they probably prefer, and keep on governing, or we go into an election and my guess is the opposition gets blamed. And the Liberals are certainly in the most favorable position, I think, heading into an election. So I don't think they're clamoring for one, that's my, my gut says, but also I don't think they would supermind it because they're probably, you know, odds on favor to win it, if not even eke out a majority from it. So... You know, it's probably somewhere in between, but, uh, you know, I don't think the the government's scared right now. All right. Uh, David, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for always uh, coming on and trying to make sense of these things. I appreciate your time. Always my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, just before the break, I played for you a bit of the exchange between Ivan Scott, who is the leader of the group that wants to keep the RCMP in Surrey. His exchange with Mayor Doug McCallum when Ivan Scott went to speak to council at a public hearing last night. That came after this exchange. And as I mentioned, only two of the people who signed up to speak to council were there in person. Uh, This was the other exchange that took place. And also a valiant battle was fought to keep ride-sharing services out of okay, the city. Okay, Madam Clerk, the mayor. please um, um, close them off. Please, sir, that's your end of your um, delegation. I would ask you to please leave, sir. Okay, I'll speak now, then. Sir, please, leave. Okay, well, good luck with the mega project. We'll promote them now, because your face will be the same as the last... Sir, please leave. I'm not going to ask you again to be. All right. Uh, that was uh, Doug McCallum. And again, you couldn't really hear uh, as the uh, microphone was cut uh, for the other man who was speaking to council. Well, Jack Hundile, who is a Surrey city councillor, wrote on social media saying this evening, I observed one of the lowest points of our term with this council under the leadership of Doug McCallum. And councillor Hundile joins me on the line now to talk a bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. 
Thank you, Joe. Uh, so uh, those were just uh, pieces of the exchange uh, that I played, uh, and I played yeah. uh, one before the news as well. Uh, w- this was a public hearing. The mayor seemed to be cutting off the microphone, saying the people speaking weren't addressing the subject matter that was to be discussed. How did you see things go uh, g- coming to last night? Well, there was only two people the, in attendance uh, that spoke, and uh, both got uh, their mics turned off uh, at the direction of the mayor. And uh, they were speaking to a public hearing, um, an application that was uh, certainly before council. You're allotted five minutes to come and present uh, your opinion or your thoughts on that application. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, people sometimes come in there and they have other issues that relate to it. Um, and in this particular case, uh, the, uh, both of the speakers that were speaking to the application and had other issues surrounding it, uh, stuff like public safety. So it's not uncommon for people to speak to that. But this obviously touched a, a, a nerve with uh, the mayor. And both these individuals were, um, uh, I think they're, they're both like in their 60s plus, um, you know, well-spoken gentlemen. They weren't being uh, rude or vulgar in any such way. Um, and really, it's uh, you're dealing with a mayor who's, it's, uh, you know, my way or the highway. Uh, is it common to have speakers' microphones turned off? No, absolutely not. I can only recall this, and uh, I think this is probably the third time or fourth time I've ever seen that uh, happen, where someone's microphone's been turned off. But, uh, you know, um, uh, keep the RCMP and retaining the RCMP or having a say in the, in the public safety uh, for the city is something that the mayor is just not interested in, in having the discussion with anyone, whether it's his councillors uh, that are on council that are no longer with him, uh, or whether it's members in the public or even uh, in media, I believe. I know the the second speaker, Ivan Scott, as mentioned, he's uh, the head of the group to keep the RCMP in Surrey. Uh, The first person that spoke, Colin, uh, who also had his microphone uh, turned off, is he also a proponent of keeping the RCMP or what was it you think that that angered the mayor? Uh, I think he's a proponent uh, as well, just like the vast majority of Surrey residents are. In multiple polls, you've seen you have anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of the population saying, look, we want to have a say in what this looks like or if you even want it. So, um, but uh, he was speaking to that same application, um, and he was asking or, or stating uh, that, uh, look, uh, you know, we want to have a say, and as we build up the city, uh, what's going to help keep us safer here? And uh, it's 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 ironic because when other people come there and they're uh, supportive of the of having the own municipal police force here, at that point, those people's mics never get shut off. Uh, you wrote, when you posted about this, that uh, you wrote, I was, quite frankly, speechless. So what was the response? Mm-hmm. What could you see uh, as far as the response from other councillors as well? Uh, I, I think the vast majority of were just uh, in shock, <laughs> quite frankly. Um, you have, um, uh, first of all, I mean, these are, these are citizens, these are taxpayers coming. This is their venue to come and speak. This is the people's house. Uh, they pay for this. You know, we have no problem asking people to pay their taxes every year, but we just don't want to hear from them is the message uh, that's being amplified uh, by behavior such as this. Uh, I was shocked. I spoke to my colleagues afterwards. I think it was generally, um, you know, just disgust with uh, with what went on there. And uh, you know what? There seems to be one set of rules for some people coming in, another set for other people. And that's what is really the disheartening part of all this. Uh, you can hear at one point in the exchanges a councillor, it might have been you, I couldn't tell whose voice it was, that called for a point of order and the mayor said, no, I'm not dealing with that and, and kind of brushed it off. Who, who, who was calling for a point of order? Do you remember? Yeah, that, that was Councillor Pettigrew. And he's basically calling for a point of order, in which case everything needs to be uh, stopped 
and uh, the mayor needs to deal with a point of order uh, at the time it happens. First, he denies him, and then he says, no, I wasn't denying you. We'll talk about it later after the recess. So there's just a misunderstanding, I think, of the rules uh, from the mayor. Uh, you wrote as well that you spoke to the general manager after mm-hmm. uh, expressing your concern. What, what response did you get from the general manager? Well, my concern was was, was really, uh, you know, that we shouldn't be um, we shouldn't be laying hands on people. We shouldn't be instructing our staff, our security staff, to uh, lay hands on people and ask them out the door. That's not really their role. Uh, or responsibility, even their authority, in fact, and in order to ever, if you had bylaw officers there, there, it's something that the police would have to do. Um, there's ways to manage that. And the last thing I want to see is certainly anyone uh, get hurt in our city uh, and be able to have people to have the venue to come and, and speak, um, uh, speak their mind. Like, when you get into politics, you may not want to agree with what people are saying, but you have to listen to them, whether they voted for you or not. So, Part of the conversation uh, with the general manager was that last night, and also exploring. Look, is this uh, how are we going to deal with this moving forward? Because as we get into budget season and other contentious issues, with uh, you know two years left in our term, uh, this is going to keep coming up again and again. And the last thing I want to see, and most of my colleagues don't want to see, is someone get hurt uh, when they're um, really speaking their mind. Uh, at, a, at an open public hearing. And and I think you make the point that a lot of people will take from listening to that in uh, that it's not as though people show up at council or even sign up at council and expect to have unlimited time or unlimited access to councillors. It's a five-minute rule. And maybe if the speakers had gone f- beyond the five minutes, cut the microphone short because you've agreed to come and speak for five minutes. But it does seem rather heavy handed to cut those microphones just a couple of minutes in. And like you said, then have somebody actually physically escort somebody out of the chambers. I mean, unless they're causing a scene or threatening violence, that does seem a little over the top. Absolutely. And you know what, when you know, the rules going in there that, uh, you know, what, uh, you have your five minutes uh, allotted, you know, some councils, have an open period where you have 15, 20 minutes where you can sort of come to council and ask sort of any question. Well, Surrey doesn't do that, and traditionally has not done that. And that's something I would like to see, where you can actually come as a citizen, and maybe it's not on the agenda, but you can answer that. The other thing, uh, which would be nice, which as the other councils do, which we don't do here, is uh, when a member of the public calls in and has a question, look, all of our staff is sitting there. They can answer those questions, but they're not permitted to. Um, they have to go through an email or council have to follow up on those questions afterwards. So really, I mean, if you want to make government accessible to people, you have to play by the rules and you can't be changing those goalposts uh, if you hear something that you don't agree with or don't like. That's not what politics is about, not in this country. Uh, do you think there's an appetite then to change things or to try and make Surrey Council and City Hall more open? Well, I think there's an appetite from the public, but not from the majority on council. Uh, one thing I, I would love to see, and, and this goes a bit into the provincial election even, is whoever gets into power next is to bring in that um, recall legislation at the municipal level, which we don't have. As I can almost guarantee it, I'm sure Surrey would be your first test case for it. Uh, how does it work then, or how does it uh, impact things moving forward when you as a council have to still work together, make decisions, and I would imagine be cordial and respectful, or, or at least that's the expectation when you're meeting and when you're in council? Mm-hmm. Well, it, uh, that goes to the leadership at the top. Um, you know, I've worked in a lot of organizations where you have good leadership and you have poor leadership, and certainly you take what you can from all that. And in Surrey Council right now, uh, look, you had a council that generally all ran with the mayor. You know, within a year, 50% are gone. All his councillors are gone from him. Uh, that speaks to the leadership factor.
All right. Councillor, we'll have to leave it there for today. But thanks so much for taking the time with us. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jill.